Do not be afraid, for I have come to save you. I have come to save you and call you mine. When the storms arise, I will be there with you. I will be there with you all the time. I am God, Lord of all creation. I am God, author of salvation, painter of the sky. beside me there is none beside me I am God I will hold your hand and I will always keep you I will always keep you Diana. Let's take her Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. That song goes wonderfully with the message this morning. Of course, last Sunday morning, the message wasn't all that encouraging. You might remember we looked at verses 1, 2, and 3 in Ephesians chapter 2, and what were we, what were we reminded of? Really, Paul, as he was penning down these words to the church at Ephesus, those believers, he wanted them to remember who they used to be. And, um, and who, who, they, who did they used to be? Well, he talked about how they had been dead. They, were, they had been born spiritually dead into this world. They were dead. And, uh, but not just dead, they were deceived. 
They were believing lies. They had been believing lies. And they were disobedient. And they were defiled. Really spiritually robed in rags. And they were doomed. And he, he talked about them. He reminded them of those, those truths, those realities. Not encouraging truths. But then as Diana just sang, and she concluded the song, uh, that God came to save us. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul now turns to in Ephesians chapter 2. He reminds us of who we used to be, but then he, he tells us, but, but God, but God, God did something for you. He took someone who is dead and he made you alive. He quickened you. And he took someone who's deceived, uh, uh, a child of disobedience, literally a child of the devil, someone who believed the lies of the devil because that's where our hearts were, and he made us the children of truth, the sons of God. And uh, you were disobedient. You, that's all you knew. That's all you used to be. But now you've been saved to walk in the truth, to obey God, to bring glory and honor to your creator. You used to be defiled, robed in those rags of sin and unrighteousness. But now you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see this this morning from the Word of God, but, but Paul, he must, his heart must have been overflowing with joy as he penned down these words to these believers. And it's with great joy that I can preach this message to you this morning. But Paul's heart must have been overflowing with joy when he talked to these believers about the reality, about the truth that, that they were saved now. They were saved. And... Uh, Whenever, the, whenever God looks at a child, one of his children, someone who's believed upon the name of Jesus Christ, you know what God sees when he looks at you as a child of God? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind what he's been talking about. You were dead. You were disobedient and deceived and defiled and doomed. But, but now, when God looks at you after you've been saved, you know what he sees? He sees... The righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees the holiness of Christ. He doesn't see sinfulness anymore. He doesn't see death anymore. He doesn't see someone who needs to be disciplined and judged for all of eternity because of their sin. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are in him. It really is a phenomenal, phenomenal truth. And I love how this letter that, that Paul is penning down, I love how it's kind of unfolding before us. He's taken us back to where we used to be. And now he says, remember that? Yeah, that's kind of awful. It's disgusting. It, it's something we're ashamed of. That's who we used to be. But I want to show you where you are in Christ. I want to show you the riches you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul's been talking about as we've gone through this passage. He's, he's talking to a group of believers like you and me, and he's saying... Listen, some of you are living like your beggars. You're living like you're spiritually in poverty. And I want you to know you're not. You're not in spiritual poverty. If you're a born-again child of God, you have the riches of God Almighty, of the Lord Jesus Christ at your disposal. And I want you to live. I want you to live the life he saved you to live. Let's look at our passage. I'll, I'll begin in verse number one, just to give us the context. Verse one, two, and three. We studied them last week, so we won't spend much time here. And then we'll read down through verse number 9. It says in verse 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, the course of this age, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our manner of life, our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others we were doomed. But, but then he says in verse 4, But God, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, where, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved." And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there's some truths we're going to look at this morning that some of you in this room are not familiar with. And truths that you don't know and you don't live with these truths in your mind as you go throughout your week. And verse 6 is one of those. Verse 7 he says this, That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. This is who you used to be, dead, deceived, disobedient, defiled, and doomed. And this, because of God, is who you are today, alive, loved, kept, and exalted. This is who you are. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your salvation that you have given unto us. Father, there are all kinds of people in this room this morning from all kinds of backgrounds. We, some of us are younger and some of us are older and rich and poor, young and old. And Father, all of us used to be doomed And yet you loved us so much that you made provisions for us, that you saved us by your mercies and your grace. God, help us to know what we have in you. Help us for just a few, uh, the next 40 minutes or so, Lord, not to be distracted and in love with the things of this world. But Father, help us for just this time to be able to see clearly what we have in you. And I will praise your name. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. But God, that's the words that start our message this morning. In verse number four, you see them there. They're not, maybe at first glance, you wouldn't think those two words might make that much of a difference. But actually, they're all of the difference. There are some pretty incredible statements in the Bible that include those two words, but God. Joseph said to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, you remember Joseph, don't you? He had been betrayed by, his, uh, betrayed by his brothers, and they hated him, and they sold him into slavery, and he was in slavery for quite a while in Egypt, and eventually God raised him to the second most powerful position in Egypt, and really throughout the world at that time. And Genesis 50 and verse 20, Joseph says this, But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. When David was fleeing for his life from King Saul, this was before David was a king, uh, Saul was the king at this, that point in history, and David was fleeing for his life, and King Saul was trying to tell him, and 
The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 14, And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds, and remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. You can imagine being hunted down, and he's living in caves and in the, the hillside. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him, not into his hand. The book of Acts records the Apostle Paul preaching a sermon when he was in Antioch. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 29, Paul's preaching this message and he says, And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, they took him down from the tree, from the cross, and laid him in a tomb, a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. Those are some pretty amazing statements. And when you see the terms, but God, normally it comes to contrast something that's horrible that's happening. David being hunted and, 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 and trying to be killed. Joseph being sold into slavery and everything going against him. And you and I dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. But God. Again, I think of the special that was sung this morning. He is there to save you. God is there to save you. The reality of, of, of the Christian perspective, which is the Bible, is this. And all of the Bible contain, contains this message. You don't have it in yourself to save yourself. You don't have it in yourself to be good enough. Um, you don't have in yourself enough to handle the pressures or the trials or whatever it is that you're facing in life. You don't have it in yourself to do it. And I would make it practical this way. In and of myself, I don't have what it takes to train up four children to love God. In and of myself, I don't have what it takes to pastor Trinity Baptist Church or to be the husband that God would have me to be or to save my soul from death and hell to come. But God. But God. But God loved me so much, he sent his son so that I could be saved. But God, by his Holy Spirit, indwells me so that I can have the wisdom that I need and the spiritual gifts that I need and the abilities that I need to pastor. But God, by Christ living in me, I have the wisdom to make the decisions that need to be made. But God, uh, by that wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can train up my children the way that they should go. And on and on it can go. And you make the application in your life. Because no doubt you're facing something, even as a child of God this morning, and you're looking at something, you're saying, I'm not ready for this, or I don't have the ability for this, or I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this. And the answer is, but God. God is able. God is able to deliver. God is able to save you know, it's very unlikely, it's very unlikely that a person would be willing to die for a good person, uh, even a person who does what is right. But God, the Bible says in Romans, commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know that our human nature is destructive, it's self-destructive, and without God, without God all of nature would self-destruct. The prophet Hosea identified the same issue in the nation of Israel when in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 9 he said, O Israel, thou that destroyed thyself, but in me, but in God, is thine help. 
There really are four activities that I want to draw our attention to in these verses, beginning in verse number four this morning. Four activities that God performed through Jesus Christ to save mankind from their sin. Activity number one, notice with me in verse number four, God loved us. And I'm going to give you these activities, all of them. I'm going to state them up front, and then we'll look at them one at a time. Uh, Activity number one, God loved us. Activity number two, uh, God quickened us. He made us alive. Activity number three, God exalted us. We'll look at that this morning. And then finally this morning, we'll see activity number four, God keeps us. God keeps us. So activity number one, God loved us. Notice in verse number four again, he says this, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, wherewith he loved us. Remember again, verses one, two, and three, and we're not going to take time to read them again, but just let your eyes peruse over those three verses and notice the words dead in trespasses and sins. Notice the term in verse 2, walked according to the course of this world. Whatever the, whatever the, the age uh, or society was doing, that's what we did. And then later in verse 2, he tells us what, who is influencing and leading the course of this world and determining and directing the course of the world. And that is the prince of the power of the air. That's the evil one. That's who we used to be. Deceived, believing those lies. And in in all of this, though we were dead and deceived and disobedient and defiled and doomed, God loved us. As unlovable as our sinful condition was, God's love was greater. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loved us. God loved sinners. But God wouldn't have loved or God would have loved, I should say, even if there were no sinners, God would have loved because that's who he is. First John 4, 8 says that God is love. Turn there with me, would you? First uh, John, uh, in your Bibles, first John chapter four. <clears throat> oh, let's look at these verses. First John chapter four, and I'll begin reading in verse number seven. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7. John is emphasizing here in this passage that God is love and so that you and I should love as well. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. God is love. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. God is love. Love is one of God's attributes, we could say. Love is what God is. It's who God is. But how does this attribute of God, this attribute of love, relate to you and me at all? I mean, God is love. That's who he is. But how does that relate to us? God is love, but, but how, does it, how does it affect us? 
Um, there are many attributes that God has. There the attribute of life. God is life, but how does his life relate to us? God is holy, but how does his holiness relate to us? God is truth, but how does his truth relate to us? For example, God is truth, and when he relates to us his attribute of truth, it is faithfulness. God is truth. It never changes, and, and, and so because he is truth, when he relates to us, we experience his faithfulness. God is by nature holy. Another example, God is holy, and when he relates his attribute of holiness to you and to me, it is related to us as justice. Justice. Um, I, think of, I think of the attribute here in the passage that we're looking at in verse number 4 where he says, for his great love wherewith he loved us, love is one of God's attributes. And when God's love relates to you and to me, it relates to us as mercy and grace. That's how it relates to us. God is love. That's who he is. And because he is a God of love, he was merciful to you and to me. He was gracious with you and with me. Notice in verse number four again, he says, but God who is rich in mercy... For, and the word for has the idea of because of. So God who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. And what he's saying is this, God was, showed mercy to you and to me because he loved us. You know, I've experienced that in my life growing up. There were many times where my parents were merciful to me. Um, and you know why? Because they loved me. That's why they were merciful to me. Sometimes we, we experience this in our marriage as a husband and wife. Uh, there are times when Cindy is merciful to me because she loves me. And some of you would say, well, that was right from the beginning, Seth. Yeah, that was. She loved me. Um, we do that with our children. We, we're, we give mercy because we love. And, and by the way, we should do that with, with one another in our local church. Uh, we should love one another. And that's easy to say, love one another. But how does that relate? How does that work itself out? Well, there's giving involved. There's mercy involved. Not giving someone what they deserve. Why? Because we love them. In verse number five, notice he says in verse number five at the end, by grace are ye saved. And, and, and God saved us by his grace because he loved us. God is rich in mercy, it says at the beginning of verse number four. In God's mercy... He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's what mercy is. God does not give us what we deserve. Psalm 86 and verse 5 says, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them who call upon thee. Psalm 103 and verse 17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The Bible talks about how God's mercies are new every morning and that he's faithful. In Micah chapter 7 and verse 18, it says, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. That's God. He's rich in mercy. He delights in, in mercy. His mercies are everlasting. Titus 3 and verse 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. He saved us. God is rich in mercy. Don't pass over that word, 
before mercy, the word rich. He's rich. He's loaded with mercy. He is abounding with mercy. God is rich. It is true. He is rich in wisdom. It is true that God is rich in majesty. He is rich in might. He is rich in glory. But God is also rich in mercy. And God has lavished his mercy upon you and me. In abundance, he did not give us what we deserved. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. So God is rich in mercy. But then you notice at the end of verse number five that we are saved by his grace. We're saved by his grace. It says there very plainly at the end of verse five, by grace ye are saved. You know, in God's grace, in his mercy, he doesn't give us what we deserve, but in his grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. There's an advertisement right now. I think Toys R Us has it out there. And their, their slogan or their slogan for the year this Christmas season is, uh, I think it's uh, because naughty is not an option. In other words, grandparents, even if they were naughty, you still got to buy them a Christmas present. That's, that's their slogan, okay? Or parents, even if they were naughty. Remember that used to be naughty or nice, you know, you get coal if you were naughty. You nice, you get the gift or whatever. But now, uh, Toys R Us is capitalizing on that because naughty is not an option. <laughs> so you got to buy it anyway. And, and that's their slogan for the year. Uh, and so, this Christmas, there will be some Christmas presents that are opened by children who didn't deserve it. <laughs> right? And pe- people will have given them gifts out of graciousness. They didn't deserve it. They didn't do anything to earn it. In fact, if we were keeping a list, a record of their deeds throughout the year, they might have to pay us something. But in grace, gifts will be given. And, uh, and here he's saying, by grace you are saved. Romans 3 and verse 24 says that we're justified, we're declared righteous freely by his grace. Not because of works, Not because of a bunch of things we did. Not because we went to church. Not because we were religious. Not because we gave a lot. Not because of the great person that we were. God declared us to be righteous by his grace. Undeserved favor. God did for us. He gave something to us in salvation that we did not deserve. And that's the emphasis of grace. Titus 3 and verse 7 also tells us that we were justified by his grace, declared righteous by his grace. Look at verse number 8, the beginning part, familiar verse. He says, for by grace are ye saved. For by grace are ye saved. It's interesting that the Bible does not say that we were saved by the love of God. It does say that we were saved by the mercy of God. It does say that we were saved by the grace of God. In other words, we were saved by God not giving us what we deserve. That's mercy. And we were saved by the grace of God, God giving us what we don't deserve. And both mercy and grace are by or because God loves us. And that's what uh, he is emphasizing here. Charles Wesley wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs. Of his grace, the triumphs of his grace. And John, or Charles Wesley put it well when he said that, oh, that a thousand tongues would sing praise to our Redeemer. Why? Because his grace has triumphed. And you know what I see when I look around a room like this? And there are visitors here, I don't know you, 
But there are many in this room that I do know, and many of you that know me well, and you could say the same thing about me. You know what I look around and I see in a room like this? I see the triumphs of the grace of God. That's what I see. His grace triumphed. And that's even why you're here at all today, because his grace has triumphed and you value his word. I see people who, who in myself included, verses 1 through 3, summarized who we were, full of sin, dead in sins and trespasses, uh, deceived, believing lies, and living our lives according to the lies that we be- believed, disobedient, defiled, filthy, and filthy rags, and doomed, deserving hell for all of eternity. But God loved us, and because he loved us, he was rich in his mercy toward us. And, and by his grace, by his grace we are saved. By his grace we were saved. The triumphs of his grace. We are not saved by God's love, but we are saved by the mercy of God. And we are saved by the grace of God that flows out of God's love. Only great love could have embraced our filthy, sin-stained rags that we used to live and used to be clothed in. And, and can I say this, that God just didn't pity you and me, though he did. He had pity on us, but God loved us. And there's a distinction there between pity and love. Um, John Phillips recounts, uh, and I'll, I'll read a story that he recounted. He, he's put it this way. The grown daughter of a man I, uh, I know is an alcoholic. And John says, I was visiting his home one day when she was delivered to his door in the grip of her terrible vice. She had drunk almost an entire bottle of whiskey. Her temper was flaming and abusive. Her face was flushed. Her manner belligerent. Her actions violent. I thought of the young girl I had met years before, before drink laid its devilish hand on her life. I looked at the picture of the young, unspoiled girl that still hung on the wall of this man's home. I pitied the poor soul with all my heart for the terrible shipwreck she had made of her life, for the ruin of her womanhood, and for her slavery to such a cruel and relentless tyrant. Her father took her gently by the arm, ignoring her abuse. He steered her unsteady footsteps to his car. He carefully settled her in, his face drawn and his eyes filled with pain. She thrashed around, but he patiently strapped her into the seat, drove her home, and put her to bed. I pitied her, John writes, but he, the father, loved her. Multiply her wretchedness by all the misery sin has brought into this world and multiply her father's love by infinity. And such is the love of God. He did not just pity you and me. He loved us. I think of that story, and I think of you and me, and where we used to be. Thrashing around, intoxicated with sin, stubborn, and rebellious. And that's all of us, folks. Some of us are... Some of us... We're not born into Christian families, and we grew up in abusive homes, broken homes, where sin really had a strong grip on that home. And you were saved out of that. Some of us in this room, like myself, we were born into families where mom and dad were already saved, and we were born into families where where our families brought us to church every Sunday, and so we didn't get to experience may be sin to its fullest and its destructive end. 
But whether we were born, whether we were saved when, when, like myself as a five-year-old boy, having been born into a Christian home, or whether you were saved out of alcohol and and abuse of some kind, substance abuse of some kind, living in, uh, in this, uh, uh, the horrible wretchedness of some drug home somewhere in Flint, Michigan, the reality is all of us were dead in our sins and trespasses, and and God loved us. He didn't just pity us. Sometimes you and I look at someone and we, we were like, oh, I feel sorry for them. God didn't just pity you and me. He loved us. He loved us. And out of his love flowed grace and mercy. Sam, Sam, Samuel Medley put it this way. He saw me ruined by the fall, talking about the fall of sin, yet loved me notwithstanding all. He freed me from my lost estate. His loving kindness, oh, how great. Activity number one, God loved us. Activity number two, God quickened us. And I'm using the the term that the Bible uses here in verse number five, God quickened you and me. Notice in verse number five, he says it this way, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. Now remember, we were dead, we were deceived, We were disobedient. We were defiled. We were doomed. The Apostle Paul reminds these believers that there was a time in their lives when they had been spiritually dead. They were unable to understand or appreciate spiritual things. There was nothing they could do of themselves to please God. And and remember, uh, someone who is physically dead doesn't hunger. They They don't They don't crave anything. There's no hungering anymore. There's no thirsting. They don't desire something to drink. I'm talking about someone who's physically dead. They don't feel pain. They're they're dead. Their their physical bodies are dead. They're deceased. And just as a person who is physically dead doesn't respond to physical stimulation, neither does someone who is spiritually dead respond to spiritual stimulation. The Word of God may be taught and preached. And you know what? It's just dead to them. The message can be preached from a, from a pulpit of the Word of God, and to a person who's alive spiritually, it encourages our heart, it convicts us, it moves us. And yet to someone who is spiritually dead, that same message, the same words can come over their ears, and it is foolishness to them. They're spiritually dead. There's no life there. Oh, there's physical life, but there's no spiritual life. They don't respond to spiritual stimulation. He doesn't have an appetite for the Word of God. He doesn't hunger or thirst for the Word of God. He doesn't want to spend any time with fellow believers, the body of Christ. And again, this person is not just in need of resuscitation. They're in need of a resurrection. And and again, that's what he's talking about here. In verse 1 he says, And you were dead. In trespasses and sins. You were dead. There was no life. There was no pulse. There was nothing. And in verse number five, he's saying, You were dead, but God has made you alive. He's raised you up from the dead. Look with me, if you would, to Luke chapter seven. Would you? Luke chapter seven, just for an illustration of this. Luke chapter seven in our Bibles this morning. I'll begin in verse number 11, Luke chapter 7. There are several uh, accounts in the word of God of Jesus raising people from the dead during his earthly ministry. People who were physically dead, they were physically deceased, the heart was not beating, they were not breathing anymore. 
and Jesus Christ wrote, uh, uh, raised them from the dead. Look at Luke chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse number 11. It says, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and such people. Now when he came nigh to the, the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And much people of the city were with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, that would be the casket, and they that bare him stood still, and he said, Young man, now he's talking to the dead corpse in the casket, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. Uh, I wonder what everybody else was thinking around him. I mean, some people might have known of him, uh, but there, I'm sure there were some who didn't know anything about him. There's just this man that walks up, puts his hand in the casket, and says, Arise. Talks to them, Young man, arise. In verse 15, And he that was dead sat up. That would be scary. And began to speak. And he delivered him, and he, <clears throat> excuse me, and he delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all of Judea and throughout all the region round about. And we'll stop there. But I just, I just read that to you just to re- reiterate to all of us this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power. He is God. And he has the power to make people who are dead live again. Take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John chapter 11 and verse number 41. You know, just as sincerely as that young man was physically dead, so too were you and I spiritually dead. And just as wonderfully as Jesus Christ spoke to that young man and said, Young man, arise, so too can the Lord Jesus Christ address you and he can make you live again. And there might be someone here this morning and spiritually you you know in your heart you are dead. You are spiritually dead. There is no communion with with your creator. Uh, You may know about religious things or maybe today is the very first time you've ever heard a sermon preached in your life. But if you are spiritually dead, listen, God only can make you alive again. He does the same thing here in John chapter 11 and verse number 41. I'll begin there and I'll read down through verse 46. It says this, Then they took away the stone from the place where, uh, where the dead was laid, speaking about Lazarus. And Jesus lift up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I know and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. Verse 43. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. It's a wonderful, while uh, some, some of these people heard about the resurrection of, of Lazarus, him being raised from the dead, some of them believed in their hearts upon the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the idea is that they believed that he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, the promised one. There were other people who quick ran off to the Pharisees to tell him what he did, and they then conspired to kill him as a result of that, raising Lazarus from the dead. But here Jesus comes to Lazarus, and he's four days dead. And Jesus says, roll the stone away, and he lifts up his voice, and he says, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus rose from the dead. What I'm emphasizing to you and to me this morning is this, that Jesus Christ, he loved us, God loved us, and God also has made us alive. And to understand the greatness of the resurrection that you and I have already experienced spiritually, being raised from death, made alive, that's a resurrection spiritually. And that's why when, when we, have a bapt, we have a baptism and someone is put under the water, it's a picture of them being buried with Christ. They are dead with Christ and they are raised from the dead. It's a picture. This is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Have you received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? I didn't ask if you've prayed a prayer. I didn't ask if you remember the date. I didn't ask if you were crying when you did it. I asked this. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Do you, has there ever been a time in your life where you, you went from unbelief, I, I, can do, I can handle life myself and I can get to heaven some way my own, my own way, but you, you changed your mind from unbelief in God to faith in Christ. Christ alone is what I need to save my soul from death and hell. Have you ever believed upon him? Have you ever received him as your personal Savior? Because the day that you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 2 happened to you. You pass from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And, and, and Paul says, you were dead, but you're alive now. You're alive through the powerful work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in both of these cases, in, in Luke and in John, and turn back to Ephesians chapter 2, but in both of those cases, the, they, were, they were dead and Jesus gave life by his word. Do you know that spiritual resurrection comes to the believer when he hears the word of God and he believes? When you believed upon Jesus Christ, you were saved. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that the word of God is quick. The word quick means alive. It's alive. It's life-giving. Why is it that you should come and hear the word of God taught and preached? Why is it that you should open it up throughout your week? Why should you open it up tomorrow morning? I mean, you're not a pastor, right? Uh, but, but if you're a child of God, why should you open it up and read what it says? Sometimes it's hard to understand. Sometimes you have to, you have to ask questions or look other places. Sometimes it's confusing even. And, and it takes some time to figure some things out. Why should you open up the Word of God on a daily basis and look to it? Well, because it's life-giving. It gives life. Uh, it gives direction for us. It, it's something that we absolutely need on a daily basis. Um, in John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is the key. Since all of our sin was judged by God on the cross, Christ's resurrection from the dead made it possible for us to be made alive again. God raised us from the tomb in which our trespasses and sins had placed us. We were spiritually dead and buried. 
And just as God has raised Christ, excuse me, he raised us from the tomb spiritually, just as he raised Jesus from the tomb in which our sins had placed him. The sin debt was canceled. Sin's penalty was paid. Death's hold was broken. We were quickened, made alive together with Christ, is what he's saying. Grace triumphed over our guilt and the grave. And God reached down into the corruption of death and raised us up. 1 John 5.11 says, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And it really is that simple. Either you have the Son of God, you have Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and you are the, you are the recipient of eternal life. You have life. Or you do not have the Son of God. You do not have Jesus Christ. You may know about him. You may have heard of him. You may have seen movies about him. You may have read scripture about him. You know about him, but you don't have him living within you. And if you don't have him living within you, you do not have everlasting life. And if you do not have everlasting life, if he has not made you alive again, if he has not quickened you, then friend, you are dead spiritually in your sins and trespasses. And if you were to die physically in that state, you would be eternally separated from God and you would suffer death and hell for all of eternity. And and Paul is saying to us, he's saying, this is who you used to be. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins. You used to be dead, but you're alive again. We we are quickened, it says there in verse 5. We are quickened together with him. I want to notice his third activity in verse number six. Just briefly this morning, God exalted us. Number one, God loved us. Number two, God quickened us. Number three, God exalted us. Notice in verse number six, he says it this way. He hath raised us up together, that is with Christ, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you're saved, this terminology is how God describes our salvation. We're in Christ. We're in him. We're secure in him. We're exalted in him. Now remember, we were dead. We were, dis- we were deceived, disobedient, defiled. We were doomed. A-, a lowly beggar in our sinful condition, but God was greater. And my question is, how has he exalted us? I mean, what is he talking about here? Well, remember in Philippians chapter 2, after Jesus Christ died on the cross, The Bible says that God hath highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we know that Jesus Christ today, after he was raised from the dead, he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, a place of prominence and a place of authority and all things are beneath his feet. But here, Paul is telling us that we have been raised up together And we are made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And really what Paul's saying is, you have been exalted. God has exalted you. Now, you might say, I don't really feel that exalted, Seth. (laughs) I mean, you don't know what my last week was like or what the next week ahead is looking like either. Well, spiritually, we have been exalted in Christ. This is what he's saying. We're, We're already seated where he is. Spiritually speaking, when God looks at us, he sees Christ. 
the beauty of His holiness, the glory of His grace, the splendor of His person. When God Almighty looks at you, if you're a child of God, He sees the righteousness of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. When God looks at a person who has received Jesus Christ, He sees Christ. By the way, in Ephesians 2, there in verses 5 and 6, you see several words. Look at there in verses 5 and 6, you see the the words quickened. You see the words raised. You see the words seated. And I'll move on from this briefly, but they're all in what's called the aorist tense, which means that it's already happened. It's already done. We don't read that in our English translation, but in the Greek translation, it has the idea it's already finished. It's already done. It's not something that might happen, or if, if, I, if, I, if I trip up here on earth, it might not happen. No, no. If you've been made alive in Christ, you have been raised, and spiritually your position is already set in Christ. It's an exalted position. It is special It has been purchased by Jesus Christ. None of us, all of him, and it is already done. Very quickly and finally, God keeps us. This is the fourth activity that God has done for us. He keeps us. Notice in verse number 7, it says this, that in the ages to come, that is, throughout all of eternity, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you know that God's purpose in saving us was not simply to rescue us from eternal hell? Do you know that God's ultimate goal in the church, in your life as an individual, and in my life as a person, as an individual, is that we would bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ? Now, the reality is when he loved us, he showed us mercy and grace and he saved us by mercy and grace. And in saving us, he made us alive. His spirit came to live within us. We've been quickened with him and and we've been exalted. It's already a done deal. Someday we'll be there physically present with him, but it's already finished. It's all completed. But but he's talking about on this earth now, his, his ultimate goal is that you and I would bring glory to him and honor to him. In fact, look back at chapter 1 and, and look with me at verse number 6, the beginning part. He says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Remember, in those verses prior to that statement, he had said, God chose you. He chose to save you. And that's to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then following that, he had gone on and he talked about how we've been forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And look with me at verse number 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory. We should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Because of his forgiveness, we praise and glorify his name. And then, and then he talked about how we were sealed by the Spirit of God. And look at verse number 14, the latter part. He says, unto the praise of his glory. You and I exist to bring glory and praise to the name of God. This is our eternal purpose. And God is going to keep us, and he's going to keep us, he's going to keep us, that we might accomplish that. 
Almighty God saves and keeps us by His grace. Salvation cannot be by works because Jesus Christ has already accomplished everything that needs to be done on the cross. Do you remember, we don't have time to turn there, but do you remember as Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he, and he, uh, the time of his death draws nigh and he says aloud, uh, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he says that it is finished. And he lowers his head and the Bible says he gave up his spirit, he yielded it up. He died willingly for you and for me. Those words, it is finished. Earlier, Jesus Christ had in prayer, in John chapter 17, in prayer to, the, to his father, he, had, he told his father, God, I've done everything you've commanded me to do. It is finished. It's all done. It's completed. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil in the temple was ripped into two parts from top to bottom. A thick, a thick uh, curtain was ripped that, that kept... It, was the, it separated the, the dwelling place of God from where everybody else or anybody else could possibly go. And, and, and what it symbolized is now we had access to God by Jesus Christ alone, without a priest or, or anybody else, but just through Jesus Christ alone. It is finished. We have access through Jesus Christ alone. He paid the price. He finished the work. And we can't be saved by our own works. And we cannot keep our salvation by our good works. Our salvation is secure in the hands of Almighty God. In John chapter 10 and verse 28, Jesus said this, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. He keeps you and me. And so Paul, in this passage, he goes from, this is who you used to be. You were dead. You were, you were deceived. You were, you were disobedient. You were defiled and corrupt. And you were doomed, facing del, or excuse me, hell and death for all of eternity. But this is who you are in Christ. He loved you. He quickened you. He has exalted you. And he keeps you. If you're a child of God and you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your salvation is God's responsibility. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the invitation to you this morning is believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that, that's what your response needs to be to him. His invitation to you is, come, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Um. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And, and whoever does that, God Almighty is the one who loved us, who quickened us, who exalted us, and keeps us. With every head bowed and every eye closed this, this morning, no one looking around, I'd like to ask a couple of questions in the time that we have. How many of you would say, Pastor Ferguson, there's been a time in my life when I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Pastor Ferguson, I know that God has saved me from my sin. I have believed, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. If that's you, would you raise your hand good and high this morning? Pastor Ferguson, you can rejoice with me. I'm a born-again child of God. Thank you. You may put your hands down. Maybe you could not raise your hand this morning. 
And, and if you couldn't, and you're, and you're being honest, thank you for your honesty. I really appreciate that. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, though, maybe where you sit, you'd say, Pastor Ferguson, I know that I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. I know, I know I'm disobedient. And I believe, though, by the word of God that you have preached, I believe that Jesus Christ can save me from my sin. Pastor Ferguson, would you pray for me? I, I want to be saved from my sin through the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you here this morning, with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, is there one who would say, Seth, would you pray for me? I want to be saved through Jesus Christ alone. If that's you, would you raise your hand good and high that I can see it? Just slip it up so I can see it and put it right back down. Anyone at all in this room? Pastor Ferguson, pray for me. I need to be saved. And I want to be saved through Jesus Christ alone. Anyone like that at all? Let's pray together. And then, Pastor Scott, if you'd come and lead us in a a hymn as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Father, thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ. Lord, our hearts rejoice to know what we have and and, and, and we're humbled, Lord, that you would love us and that you would make us alive, that you would save us that we are exalted and that we ought to live to that, live up to that. And then, Lord, that you keep us. And our salvation is not ours, our responsibility to keep, but it is your responsibility. And I praise you for it, that you're able to do that. Bless us as we go from this place, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.